Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, January 27th. We begin with another edition of Ask the Doctor with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. As always, Dr. Janney takes the time to answer your coronavirus questions. When the COVID-19 vaccines are readily available to Canadians, should we be offered the choice of which vaccine we take? We hear the thoughts of a bioethicist from Western University. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. We get details on the virtual remembrance ceremony being held by the Calgary Public Library. And finally, a local success story. We meet an Alberta-based writer, photographer and blogger whose unique work is being featured in Vogue magazine. 812, it is that time where we get to pose your COVID-19 questions to our expert. Dr. Craig Janney is here, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Dr. Janney. Good morning. Wow, we have a long list of questions. I'm not even sure we can get to them all. People really have a a lot more, you know, things on their minds when it comes to, you know, the the variants, the the virus itself, but of course the vaccines. So let's Mm -hmm. get started. Um, We'll talk about, uh, you know, this texter saying with so many variants right now, should we expect there to be more and more and more as we move forward? Yes, so this is not unexpected. This is how viruses work. And and really, this is the reason why, for example, we have a flu shot every year. Influenza changes every year as well. So variants are are expected. The more cases around the world, the more likely it is a new variant. But only occasionally do these variants become functionally different, such as what we're seeing now with this UK variant and and the South African or, or Brazilian variant. So there's lots of variants out there. Some of them can change the function of the virus a little bit, as we're seeing, but we, we unfortunately can't expect new variants uh, as long as this virus is around. Dr. Jenny, what do we know about the variants as far as, is it a greater chance to get COVID-19 if you're in the same proximation you'd be with the old virus, or is it the amount of time that you spend with somebody is less that you have a greater opportunity to contract COVID-19? Yeah, so the numbers really have not been broken down that far. What we do believe, and this is based on just looking at the virus moving through a community, is that these variants are more infectious. So you have an increased chance of catching it. And the specific mechanism for that is not entirely clear. Some of the early data was suggesting that it's a virus that you simply shed more of. So when you're sick, you put more viruses back out into the environment. So things such as distance and time would definitely influence that. What we do believe, though, is that our current measures still work against these viruses. It's just that anytime we, we have a lapse in our, in our defenses, so not wearing a mask at a specific event or, or time, the virus takes advantage of those small gaps and, and causes infection a little more easily. Dr. Jenny, this person asking about vaccines and why they're being given to people who've recovered from COVID. Uh, they give the example of a local assisted living complex. Ten mm-hmm. residents recovered but were vaccinated anyway. Isn't the vaccination, they say, supposed to accomplish the same result as recovering from the virus? Right. So when we draw things out on paper, that, that really is the goal, is the same result. However, with the coronavirus, it seems as though it's very good at turning off our immune memory. So people who have recovered don't seem to have long-lasting protection. So those people might have some protection for the first few weeks after they were sick, but then that's going to fade pretty quickly, and we can overcome that by vaccinating. The vaccine doesn't have those same inhibitory problems that the live virus has. So by giving a vaccine, we're hoping we can generate many years of protection, at least until a virus variant escapes the vaccine. Not sure if you know the answer to this one. When do you think people... 60 years and older will uh, be scheduled for a vaccine. Yeah, unfortunately I don't. This is 
entirely dependent on how much vaccine we get. So the province and the country have prioritized who should get the vaccine first, and we simply work our way down the list with the number of doses of vaccine we have. So people over 60 are among the higher groups, but they're not in that group 1 or, or group 1B that we're vaccinating here in the province. How about this one? If you were to somehow contract another coronavirus right now, like SARS or MARS, would you still test positive for COVID-19? That's a great question. Um, the, the answer is, is going to seem a little evasive, but it depends on which test you're getting. So the provincial test here in Alberta, you will not test positive for those ones with our current test because we're looking for multiple genes and you, you'd have to have multiple hits. But if it's a very simple antigen test, it's looking for a virus protein in the blood, it may not be able to differentiate between the strains. So uh, it, it would depend entirely on which test you're receiving. And I want to get some clarity because something that's come up again this week is that the flu is being counted as COVID-19. People who go in with flu symptoms have COVID-19. So we can try to put this to bed once again. Yeah, unfortunately, these are two very different viruses. Uh, It's like saying that they're they're both, um, you know, uh, land animals and one is an elephant and one is a cheetah. Um, they're, they're, They're not related at all other than they happen to infect our airways and make us feel pretty miserable. Um, so, yeah, we, we do know that viruses uh, that are circulating in Calgary right now, in Canada right now, are predominantly this coronavirus. We've not yet detected influenza, and we're looking for it. So it, it's a completely different variety of virus, uh, although the symptoms are similar. Can we get you to hang on for a couple mm-hmm. of minutes, Dr. Jenny? We've got 752 more questions <laughs> for you. Excellent. Okay, hang on for a second. That's Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist at the U of C. 819 on the morning news. More with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. Thank you for uh, spending more time with us, Dr. Janney. Happy to be here. All right, here's the one that we've had before, but, uh, you know, I've got a different caveat to it. Um, Can you uh, mix and match the Pfizer and Moderna vaccination and... Should Canadians get to choose which COVID nineteen the vac- which COVID nineteen vaccine they get when there's multiple choices? Okay, so the first part, although it has been said by uh, both Health Canada and the U.S. FDA that as a last resort you can mix the vaccines, we're strongly recommending we don't do that. So the good news is there's a fair bit of flexibility in the timing. Although these vaccines are ideally designed to be delivered the second dose three to four weeks after your first dose, there is a fair bit of flexibility there. That could go to to six weeks or even a little more. So we are going to try and match the doses, uh, even if we have to delay that second shot a little bit rather than mix them. Um, The other question, can we choose our vaccine? Although this seems like a a nice option, we do still have to remember that each of these vaccines is a little bit different, and therefore it is better matched to certain populations. So uh, the the adverse reactions could be different, and there would be people that are on exemption lists. We need to ensure that we have enough vaccine for the people who can receive that type of vaccine, rather than simply who wants to choose it. So the healthcare system is prioritizing where to deliver vaccine. Uh, We've seen that already with the Moderna vaccine being a little bit more portable, can go out to more rural communities, whereas the Pfizer vaccine has to stay close to those ultra-cold storage. So it's a little less of a choice and a little bit more of what can we deliver to people safely. Here's an interesting question. Could you get the vaccine to people who are already in hospital or ICU? Would it help them recover sooner or have, you know, less serious outcomes down the road? Or is it too late once you have COVID already? That's a fantastic 
fantastic question. That does work for some vaccines. So, for example, hepatitis uh, A vaccine, you can receive it after you've been exposed. That's never been tested with these current vaccines. And my initial uh, suspicion would be, as the vaccines take so many weeks to actually develop protective immunity, it probably would be too late if you're already in the hospital with COVID-19 for this particular vaccine. Here's one. I've heard people who test positive are told not to test again because they will be testing positive for between three to six months. Does that mean they'll be shedding a virus for that time and can pass it on? No. So that's another great point. Um, so we have seen that in some patients. It seems to be dead, inactivated RNA. So the genetic material of the virus, but it's not associated with any live viruses. And that's why our current guidelines are for a fixed period of time after your test positive. So 10 days of self-isolation, um, after which point, you know, you, you can then leave self-isolation, even if you still happen to have uh, detectable uh, RNA from the virus, because there's no more infectious particles. Not sure you can answer this specifically, but this person asking, why can't Pfizer or Moderna sell or license their formula for their vaccines to other companies so that more supply can be produced more quickly? Yeah, again, fantastic point. Uh, We're starting to see that. So there is another major pharmaceutical company in Europe that has applied for the license. The hard part is these two vaccines are not your classic standard vaccines that we normally make, for example, for flu or tetanus. It needs very specialized equipment to make these actual vaccine formulations. So it is not a, a simple get the recipe and start brewing this up in your own factory. You'd have to retool and rebuild your factory to do these vaccines. And Uh, We had seen some hesitancy, but the the urge for vaccine or the need has really caused some companies to to approach exactly that avenue. 15 seconds, but I had to stick this one, and I've seen some countries that are saying that we should be double masking. Is double masking effective, and should we consider it here in our nation? Right, so this really falls into all of the general mask discussion, where we did see uh, earlier comments about a three-layer mask was more recommended. The comment for double masking is because a lot of people are still wearing a single fabric layer mask, and the recommendation for double masking is to ensure that all of these people are getting up to the standard of a three-layer mask. So if we read the details on those recommendations, it's double masking or an N95 or a triple-layer mask. So it's really just ensuring the quality of the mask we're wearing is high. And if it is not, we can really improve them by simply doubling up. Well, we didn't get to all of our questions, so we'll have to ask you to come back again. Will you join us again another time? Anytime. Excellent. Take care, guys. Thank you. Have a great day. That is you Dr. Too. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. 609, it's the morning news here on 770 CHQR with two different COVID vaccines approved so far in Canada and two more in the pipeline should Canadians have the option to choose which shot they receive. Charles Weyer is a bioethicist at Western University and joins us now with his thoughts. Good morning to you, Charles. Good morning, Andrew. Thanks for having me uh, on your show. Thanks for being here. Uh, And I'm guessing that this is a topic that we'll have to address as we move deeper in and the vaccines are more readily available to to all uh, Canadians and Calgarians for that matter. But uh, should we be able to choose which vaccine we get? Yes, I, I, I think we should be able to do so. I mean, this is, uh, you know, I'm imagining a point a little bit further down the road here as vaccine supplies actually catch up with demand. Um, I think Canadians should have a choice as to as to which vaccine uh, they receive. Look, we're, we're, we're not there yet. I mean, the news this week was that there's a delay in, in Pfizer vaccine deliveries. Canada actually isn't getting any 
Pfizer vaccine um, this week. But if you step back and look at the bigger picture, we've got 1.1 million doses of vaccine already delivered in Canada. Uh, the government's estimating um, administering 4 million doses by the end of, of March. And starting in April, uh, they're looking at 1 million doses of vaccine delivered to Canadians um, each week. So once, once we get to that point where supply has caught up with demand and perhaps we have another one or two vaccines um, approved in Canada, I think that's a point where we can really um, start to talk about um, the idea that Canadians perhaps should, should have a choice in the, in the vaccine that they receive. Professor, does it really matter, though, from, you know, Moderna to Pfizer? And, and might that not slow down the process? If I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want the Moderna. I'd like the Pfizer one. You know, might that not be a bit of an issue eventually? Well, look, so we're, that's, we're, we're definitely not there right now. I mean, uh, choice makes no sense at this, at this moment in time. Right. I mean, uh, vaccine deliveries and administration properly is being tightly regulated by federal and provincial governments to make sure that it goes to the people who need it most right now. And obviously that means elderly Canadians and and uh, frontline health care providers. So so what's happening now is exactly what what should be happening. I'm imagining a point uh, that I think we're going to reach pretty predictably. Um, some months down the road where we've actually got three or four vaccines uh, that are available. Right now, the two vaccines that are available are pretty similar. Uh, The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are both 95% effective. They both have a very good safety um, profile. They both involve um, getting two shots. And they're they're the same kind of of vaccine, Uh, they're so-called mRNA uh, vaccines. So there isn't much to choose right now between available vaccines. But as uh, future vaccines uh, come online, there, there may be more to choose from here. So as the AstraZeneca vaccine perhaps is approved in Canada, um, that's, a, that's a different um, kind of, 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 uh, of vaccine. It's, it's based on an adenovirus uh, vector, and there are some, there are some differences. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is interesting because unlike the others I've mentioned, it's a one-dose um, vaccine. We have seen some rare issues um, with, with the Pfizer vaccine. So there have been some reported severe allergic reactions. They're very, very rare. So only 11 out of a million people um, vaccinated have these problems. But, but And right now, uh, the Pfizer vaccine is not recommended for, for someone who has a history of severe allergic reactions, right? So someone who every day carries around an EpiPen okay. uh, because of allergic considerations. But, you know, when other vaccines come online, what about people who perhaps have a history of, of mild allergies, right? And they're, they're sort of like, well, you know, if, if there's a choice here, I'd rather um, I'd rather take a vaccine that has a lower rate, perhaps, of, of allergic reactions. There are other choices we can imagine in the one dose versus versus two dose choice. I mean, let's imagine we don't know yet, but maybe the a one dose alternative is a little bit less less effective 
than a two-dose alternative. Mm -hmm. We can imagine different people based on their values making different choices. One person might say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm pretty busy. Give me the one dose so I don't have to you know, go to the health clinic twice. Um, whereas another person might say, no, you know, there are vulnerable people in my family and I want to I wanna get the maximal amount of protection. That's where values come in. That's where choice comes in. And this is, you know, in terms of licensed medical products in Canada, you know, this is, this is kind of how we, how we do it. When there are multiple products available, we, we prefer, where possible, to give Canadians a choice. Professor, I'm wondering, and, uh, you know, as far as the availability, once we do have, and I was, uh, I'm impressed to hear that we will have a million vaccines per week by later this spring, because right now it does seem a little doom and gloom with the rollout. Uh, when they do yeah. all roll out as a bioethicist, do you believe that it is the responsibility of every Canadian who has the opportunity to get a vaccine um, to, to move ahead with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, uh, we uh, pandemic uh, is, is just one of those situations where, you know, Canadians, we, you know, we, we, we have to stand uh, together. The only way we're going to um, put the, the COVID-19 pandemic in the rearview mirror is, is through social solidarity. Canadians need to stand together. And, be, you know, a key part of, of achieving herd immunity is, is the fact that the vast majority of Canadians, uh, when offered the opportunity, uh, need to accept uh, the vaccine. And, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's I think Canada has a, a tremendous uh, tradition of this. It's been so uh, heartening watching from the earliest days of of the of the pandemic how Canadians have have come together to take care of you know not just their own families but their neighbors and 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 perhaps an elderly person um, down the block. The rejection of fear mongering in Canada for care mongering. Well, that's that's exactly what we need with with the vaccine rollout. Canadians um, should step forward. And, and get vaccinated, not just for themselves and their own family, but for their neighbors, other people in the community, and especially, especially for the vulnerable. Important discussion to have, and uh, we'll talk about it further as we get more vaccines available to us. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Sue. It's a real pleasure. That is Professor Charles Ware, bioethicist at Western University. 719 now in the Calgary Public Library hosting an online program for International Holocaust Remembrance Day. It goes tonight at 7 o'clock. Of course, it's going to be virtual like everything else these days. And to talk about it, we're joined by the event coordinator for tonight, Stephen Dolman. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. You know, to me, it's just shocking that we still have to fight against Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism. But sadly, we do. So this is really important what you're doing tonight. Tell us about who's going to be speaking. Absolutely. So we are so pleased to be hosting Dr. Deborah Lipstadt, uh, the professor of Holocaust studies at Emory University in Atlanta this evening. Uh, and this event is being presented in partnership with the Calgary Jewish Federation and sponsored by Barb and Ron Krell and Lillian Bill Lister. Stephen, let's talk about the fact that everything that we, every event that we've dealt with for the past year has changed due to the pandemic. How does it look different online doing the Holocaust Remembrance Day versus in person? 
Well, I think the library is all about empowering community by connecting people to ideas and experiences and inspiration and insight. And we've been very fortunate to be able to do that during our virtual events. Um, It's amazing to see a sense of community during these events, even if they are virtual and we aren't able to come together in person. And I think tonight's event is a great example of that, especially the response from the community. So we have a thousand spots for this evening and they're filling up very fast. So people are looking for this kind of experience in Calgary, even if it has to be virtual. Now we're 76 years after the Holocaust, but the professor or the historian who's speaking tonight, she definitely has uh, some important credentials, you know, to bring her forward for this event, doesn't she? Oh, absolutely. She um, She's very well known for uh, being involved in a libel lawsuit that was brought against her in 1996 by David Irving, Irving perhaps the most famous um, libel lawsuit. Uh, and the court case went on about 10 years, and it was uh, an undeniable victory for Dr. Lipstadt at the end, and of course became the basis for a film uh, called Denial uh, a few years after that. David, you men- uh, Stephen, you mentioned that uh, we have this uh, thousand slots available uh, you know, for the online Remembrance Day. How do people sign up and, and register for this? Absolutely. So calgarylibrary.ca is where you go to register. I should mention that we are also live streaming this evening's event on Facebook. So if you aren't a Calgary Public Library card member and aren't able to become a Calgary Public Library card member, please do join us on our Facebook page. Uh, that will be starting at 7 p.m. as well. And obviously, you know, Stephen, this is a, an important discussion to be had, but it, it, it is an, an event for adults only, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. It's going to be a keynote discussion by Dr. Lipstadt, uh, as well as a Q&A that will follow that. And, and we do anticipate that there'll be lots of great questions and ideas. And uh, Dr. Lipstadt is an expert at navigating these sometimes challenging waters. Well, we appreciate it and uh, the information all on calgarylibrary.ca. Thanks for your time, Stephen. Well, thanks so much, Andrew and Sue. Great chatting with you. That is Stephen Dolman, Program Coordinator uh, for the Calgary Public Library. 909. Edmonton photographer and blogger Marielle Terhart has achieved something pretty spectacular in the fashion world, being featured as a writer in Vogue. Marielle joins us now with more on her work. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. A chance for you to toot your own horn. What got you noticed (laughs) by Vogue? Uh, Well, I've been working in the intersections between ethical and sustainable fashion um, and body inclusion in the fashion industry for the last five years. Um, And I actually had an opportunity a couple years ago to speak on a panel that was moderated um, by the person that is now the fashion editor for the online section of Vogue. Um, and so Sarah reached out to me and, and asked if I'd be interested in writing a piece for them, talking about kind of the direction uh, both sustainable fashion is going in um, and more body-inclusive fashion is going in for, you know, the next decade. It sounds like a fairly niche section of the fashion industry, uh, something obviously you're passionate about. What what drew you to that section? Um I think the biggest thing for me is that it directly affects my day-to-day life. The fashion industry is one of the biggest polluters in the world right now. And so um, as we look at kind of the future of fashion and the direction so many brands are going in, ethical and sustainable fashion is going to be essential. We need to reduce the carbon footprint of the fashion industry right now and rapidly. And then if you look at the size of the average North American, more and more people are plus size, more and more people are wearing sizes above a 16. And so if we're talking about you know, kind of the direction the future of fashion is going in, well, it's going to need to be sustainable and it's also going to need to fit the majority of the population. 
Mario, when you say, you know, sustainability, would this be something, you know, in terms of what we've heard in the past few years, uh, like fast fashion? Yeah, absolutely. It's the amount of waste that fashion and the fashion industry makes. We still have huge fast fashion brands that know it's cheaper to burn clothing than to resell it. Um, If you look at, you know, what happens when you return fast fashion, often it's just thrown out. Um, And that's before even talking about the amount of water it takes and the amount of water pollution that happens for something as simple as making a pair of jeans. I'm fascinating because most people wouldn't really know nor even think about that side of the fashion industry. I want to touch on the body inclusion part because, you know, thank goodness somebody finally, we're, we're really starting to talk about this because, you know, traditionally, especially in Vogue magazine, you see, you know, young women who weigh 47 pounds and that's not, you know, the norm in the world. So I'm glad that you're, you're talking about this. What, what's the message you want to give about body inclusion? Um, I think that one of the biggest parts of it for me is that ultimately fashion comes down to a conversation of access. You need clothing for literally every part of your life. You know, we're talking about the weather today. It's so cold here in Alberta. You need a snowsuit. Where are you going to go and buy plus size snow pants? Where are you buying a plus size winter jacket? Um, back in, you know, the pre-COVID times when you went to the office, where are you buying formal clothes? Where are you buying business appropriate attire if you're a size 24, 26, 28? And so I think for me, it's so much about uh, who is given access to one of the most basic needs we have in our society and how can we continue to challenge and push for greater inclusion in that space. Uh, and that's before even touching on all of the self-esteem issues mm-hmm. um, and you know disordered eating patterns so many people in our culture are facing right now. Well, then let's talk about some of the ad campaigns that I remember uh, there was a bit of a hoopla uh, made even maybe even as much as 10 years ago when Dove came out with a campaign uh, using a uh, plus size models and not what we use as the term waifs uh, back in the day. So this is something that isn't brand new trying to change the tides, is it? Yeah, it's one of those things that seems to take a lot longer than it really should, but it's been really exciting over the last couple of years to see huge shifts forward. You know, we have performers and artists like Lizzo who simply wouldn't have been able to exist you know, 20 years ago when I was growing up. And so I think the more we see body diversity in mainstream culture being celebrated, accepted, and normalized, the easier it is for all of these other industries to start falling in line because they want to be keeping up with the time. Marielle, what does this do for you now? I mean, you you get into Vogue. Does does it lead to more articles in Vogue? Does it lead to bigger and better things for you? What 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 doors does it open? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I'm hoping it will lead to me being able to continue to write and talk about these issues. I'm hoping it will continue to lead to more people uh, being interested and inspired to look into ethical and sustainable fashion. Um, I've been doing, you know, this work uh, for the last five years. I run a Patreon account, which is a paywalled blog uh, with over 700 subscribers. So that's always nice to get, you know, such a notable publication talking about you and acknowledging your Mm -hmm. expertise in the field. Um, and so I'm hoping to be able to continue to do that. And ideally, when we're able to travel again, uh, to be able to travel and speak on panels and continue to uh, put out the call for more ethical and sustainable brands to be considering larger bodies when they're designing. Mario, can you tell us about the process, you know, from getting a, a contact from Vogue? Was it was it surreal? Is this something that you don't believe at first? Because I understand that that's like, you know, the Super Bowl of fashion magazines. Yeah, I think it's 
the process of writing an article is it feels very much the same all the time. Mm-hmm. But actually seeing your own photo on Vogue.com, especially being someone that, you know, grew up in Alberta in a small prairie town that most people in New York have never heard of, is an absolutely surreal experience. Um, and then pairing that with I wear a size 22, 24, so also being plus size myself um, and, you know, using words like fat neutrally in the article is it feels a bit like shouting in a library. <laughs> what would you say, you know, I know that I have uh, two teen daughters and they're very much into fashion and they consider themselves fashionistas, although I question a lot of what they wear. Uh, to young <laughs> girls out there who have, you know, an appetite for, for fashion and perhaps want to get into the industry or get into to writing, for, for example, for somebody like you who, who took a different path to, to break down barriers. I think the biggest thing in fashion writing right now and in fashion in general is figure out what your niche is. You said, like, that's so specific. And mm-hmm. I think that having that specificity allows you to become an expert in a specific part of the fashion industry. And then the other thing is to take advantage of platforms like social media, to take advantage of the fact that we're all inside right now. So it doesn't matter where you live in the world. You have the ability to be making connections and to be growing uh, who you are interacting with uh, without having to leave your home so that you know these opportunities do start to come up well congratulations to you and uh, we expect to be hearing much more about you in the uh, days weeks months years ahead so congrats on that thank you so much thanks for joining us that's marielle terhart edmonton writer photographer sustainable and inclusion faction activist fashion activist that's quite the title mm-hmm. i'm not sure if all that's on her business card but you can go to mariellelizabeth.com check out her website her title loops from the front of the business card to the it back does. Just, just follow the arrows <laughs>